Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, he's a former high school English teacher turned lawyer who now represents the Sacramento suburbs and Sierra foothills in the state assembly. That's right. He's Republican Kevin Kiley, a lawyer who once worked in Kamala Harris's Department of Justice. Although he's kind of quick to say he never met her. We'll ask him about that. Assemblyman Kiley joins us in a few minutes. But first, Marisa, pretty big day in Sacramento. Governor Newsom unveiling his revised budget very different from the one he unveiled in January takes into account the harsh realities of COVID-19 shaving 19 billion dollars off the budget he released back then. Our Sacramento politics reporter Katie Orr was in the room for the budget presentation today and Katie good to have you with us before we start though I want to hear what it was like to be there because this was the first in-person press conference with reporters there uh, since mid-March what was it like? Yeah, it was not like anything I've ever uh, been to before in terms of a budget announcement or a May revise. It was at the Secretary of State's um, office. He has a large auditorium there. Uh, we, uh, The press was limited to about 10 reporters. I had my temperature checked before I went in. They had assigned seats so that we were like very socially distant from each other. What was your temperature? Very... <laughs> they didn't tell me. They just told me it was <laughs> you, <laughs> apparently you it didn't raise in. any red flags. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but, and I also had to wear a mask, which didn't work out great with my glasses. Um, but it was a it was a very much more controlled uh, environment. They were trying to strike a balance between letting reporters have access to the governor during this, you know, tumultuous time, but also keeping people safe. Well, let's talk about the budget. Uh, as I said, it shaves $19 billion off of the budget. Uh, most of the problem, of course, from the cratering revenue. What was the tone that the governor set and, and what are some of the big takeaways? Well, this, the tone was that I took away from it really was that the federal government needs to step up. He said it time and time again that this is we are facing a massive budget deficit, $54 billion over the next two years. And even if the state makes uh, all the cuts in the coming years, there will still be issues. He said this is not something that California alone can handle, that the the state needs the, the federal government really needs to kick in more money. Specifically, he was um, he was backing a plan. Uh, from uh, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi to give uh, more money uh, to state and local governments. Yeah, that's a $3 trillion plan. I know that the governor and other governors around the country have asked for a trillion dollars for state and local governments, Katie. Um, And again, thank you for taking one for the team and going to that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, education was something that we were all watching to see kind of how 
things went there. And it does seem like he is attempting to cushion the blow. Um, he said that the shortfall is pegged at $19 billion and that they've found a kind of mix of ways to, to cushion that. Um, so it's closer to $10 billion or 9 or $10 billion, I think, now. Um, some of that does include federal money that's already been appropriated. Some of that includes um, what I think our guest might call kicking the can down the road around pensions. Um, you know, this idea that the state is going to take money that they would have put towards longer-term pension liabilities and help school districts with their annual pension liabilities over the next two years. Do you think that's going to be a big sticking point in Sacramento? Well, I think we're seeing Newsom trying to make the best out of a bad situation, right? I mean, certainly when you come to pension obligations, that's always an area of uh, contention among lawmakers. Um, is the state paying too much? How can we reduce our obligation? While others say, you know, this is something that we, we, um, that, uh, that, um, civil servants really work for and deserve. So you're trying to see Newsom give the teachers something to help them through this this dark time. But, you know, I think it's everyone has to acknowledge that this is the first of a couple of years of potential budget cuts that we're looking at. And as you said, he's trying to soften the blow, but I don't know how long that that can go on for. And Katie, of course, in January, the governor rolled out some big ambitious programs around housing, homelessness, a number of issues, child care. Is it fair to assume those are just all out the window now? He said in his press conference today that the majority of uh, the new things that he had proposed are gone. The state simply doesn't have the money to um, to pay for those right now. And as I said, and as you've heard, Scott, too, that people aren't even as concerned about this year as they are about the coming budget years, because at least now they assume that the federal government will hopefully reimburse us for things like through FEMA, stuff like that. And they're not sure what's going to happen in the coming years when they don't have those reimbursements coming in. But the tax revenues and all of that is still depressed. Um, Katie, you know, I think that this is going to be a very different situation than we've seen since Newsom came into office, right? Um, we had this massive expansion. And I think that uh, it, it, it does seem like he is trying, you know, to, to cushion a lot of this, as I said before, as much as possible. Um, but one of the big expansions in his January budget was, of course, uh, Medi-Cal coverage to undocumented seniors. Can you talk about that? And uh, that, I mean, obviously, that's been canceled. But the sort of framing he put around this, because it, it's it's sort of this dichotomy, right? At the same time as we're spending more than ever on a lot of these new things that weren't even our lexicon before, like PPE, right, <laughs> and, and ventilators, um, they're they're being asked to cut. So, can you talk about how he kind of framed the healthcare aspect of all this? Well, it's interesting because. You know, you want to there are certain programs that you can address to save like actual dollars in the budget. But you have to look at the overall picture of how of, of like in the long run, what is this going to do to the health and safety of, um, you know, people in the state? Is this cut now going to mean we're going to have to pay more down the road for uh, people you know, when they get sick because we didn't give them insurance right now because we couldn't afford to do it. It's, you know, he always says like, well, he says we're not playing small ball here. And I feel like that that is something that really applies here because you're talking about 
uh, impact to millions of people for years to come. And that's something they really have to weigh, both the governor and the legislature, when they decide what gets cut and what's get, what gets funded in these uh, budget budgets in the coming years. And Katie, I spoke to Senator Holly Mitchell earlier today. She ran for the legislature back in 2010, I think it was, because she didn't like the way the legislature was dealing with the budget deficit back then. And uh, she was an advocate for you know, uh, child care and other low-income family benefits. Um, and she said that one of the things they learned last time was that you don't you want to make smart cuts. You don't want to make cuts that you can't undo as the, you know, the economy recovers, as the pandemic goes away. Hopefully it will. Did you get any sense um, of that, of those lessons being applied by the governor when he rolled out uh, the budget today in terms of, you know, not eliminating things, but maybe reducing them or freezing them? Yeah, I think we did get a sense of that, but actually more so in the past budget that he already passed. He said that a lot of the ongoing spending, or um, excuse me, he said a lot of the spending that had been added in the previous budget was one-time spending. And that is something that he really emphasized last year, that these are one-time funds. We don't want ongoing spending just because of this very situation, where if you put in a lot of new ongoing spending, then that might have to be cut when we hit a recession. And last year, though, we certainly didn't anticipate anything like COVID-19. There was concern that a recession was on the horizon. We had been overdue for one, and they were very cognizant of that while uh, crafting the budget. So I think that is a lesson that they did take from past uh financial downturns, you know, more one-time spending, less ongoing spending where they can uh, make it work. Yeah, and as you said, I mean, we do have um, pretty significant rainy day funds compared to where we were when I was covering the 2009 (laughs) uh, crash. Katie, um, before we let you go, talk us through what's happening next. I mean, I can't imagine that even though they have to pass and, you know, he must sign a balanced budget by July 1st, that that will be the end of the conversation around next year's budget or certainly the, the, the one after that. You know, that's really interesting because I actually asked the governor that question at his press conference today. Does he anticipate coming back in August after we have the July 15th tax revenues? So we actually know the amount of money uh, we're going to be working with, not just projections, and redo the budget process. So far, the answer from the governor's office, he did not answer it directly in the press conference. But the answer I got from his office was no. To them, they think that this what they have crafted should get us through um, to July and then it should hold up for the rest of the year. They're not like sticking to that. You know, they're not going to, you know, that's not their hill to die on, but they're saying that that is their plan. Whereas we have heard from uh, people in the legislature saying that, no, you know, maybe we'll just do something temporarily and, you know, till July and then come back in August and really pass a fuller budget then. So I think it'll be interesting. It's kind of setting up a a possible disagreement between the legislature and the governor's office about how they exactly want to address this issue. But as you mentioned, they have to pass something by June 15th. Just how complete and robust it is uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, we'll surely be back uh, after that I'm, uh, to be taking up some of the other issues that uh, didn't they didn't have time to deal with this time. So Katie Orr, thank you so much. We'll say goodbye to you for now. And we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Republican Assemblyman Kevin Kiley. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. (music) 
Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is the man who represents the northern suburbs around Sacramento up to the Sierra foothills in El Dorado County. Kevin Kiley, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, listen, you've been listening to us chatting about the budget, but what's your reaction? I'm sure you were paying attention to the governor today. Uh, What do you think of what he rolled out? Yeah, so I listened to the press conference. I should say, you know, I haven't had a chance to study it in in great detail yet. Uh, But kind of my, you know, initial response is that, unfortunately, uh, it continues to bear, uh, you know, the mark of what's really uh, hobbled a lot of our state's uh, economic response to the pandemic. And that's you know, the, one of the defining characteristics of California politics in general, um, the, uh, the influence of special interest groups. You know, you see that $20 million uh, are still allocated in, the, in this budget, which the governor says is for our most essential priorities. We have $20 million to enforce AB5 uh, and go after independent contractors in the state of California in order to benefit uh, the state's biggest and wealthiest interest group. And then, you know, at the same time, uh, we're gonna have uh, dramatically reduced funding, of course, uh, for local governments, for school districts all across the state. And what I'd like to see is uh, the legislature and the governor softening that blow by trying to reduce at the same time some of the state-imposed costs on these entities. So let's uh, take away some of the mandates on uh, local school districts or the compliance burdens for cities and counties, and for that matter, get rid of a lot of the excessive uh, regulations on small businesses so that they can survive and get back on their feet, and ultimately they'll contribute tax revenue as well. Assemblyman, I want to go back to the first thing you mentioned, which is AB5. This is the uh, law passed last year that requires um, a lot of independent contractors to become employees. I know this has been uh, a big bee in your bonnet. You, this is not a thing you like. I'm just curious, though, is that really the most important thing that you're looking at? We're talking $20 million here. And I mean, as you know, independent contractors don't qualify for employee benefits and things like that. I mean, just given the discussion we were just having about trade-offs, I mean, is that really going to make that big of a difference? Well, I bring that up initially just as sort of it's uh, symbolic, I think, of, okay. uh, of the general approach that somehow that 20 million still found its way into this thing. And it shows you uh, who's really driving the process. But to answer your question more broadly, I hey, think let me just interrupt you real quick. When you say who's yeah. driving, you mean you're talking about labor. Yeah, or the big union conglomerates. I mean, I, I don't even really call them labor because it's, you know, they're, it's, it's very different than what most people think of as a traditional uh, labor union. These are more corporate like. Uh, entities. Um, But, uh, you know, I will say that at a time in which uh, folks need all the opportunities for work that they can get, uh, you know, the fact that we are by law prohibiting many people in over several hundred professions uh, from practicing uh, their craft. uh, And, you know, and and a lot of times uh, uh, these are, uh, you know, manners of working that uh, you can do from home at a time when people are forced to be in their homes, yet we're saying we're li- legally prohibiting people from doing that. Um, so uh, I think that uh, absolutely, it's a very important issue at this point in time. And it's uh, unfortunately exacerbated the negative impacts of the pandemic and the, and the uh, other forms of economic shutdown we've had. 
And, and of course, the governor is heavily relying on, counting on, on, I won't say begging, but urging the federal government to step forward with another big package of stimulus. Uh, he's pushing and supporting Nancy Pelosi's call for another $3 trillion, including $900 million to states. Um, what do you feel, feel about that reliance on that federal money, money? Is that something you would encourage Republicans in Congress to support? Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, in some form, uh, we will uh, take the relief if we can get it. Uh, but I don't think it should come to California just as sort of, uh, you know, a blank check. I think that um, there needs to be some assurance that the, the funding isn't going to be used in a way that only serves to enrich special interest groups and doesn't actually help out ordinary Californians. And when you look at the way our budget has grown, uh, you know, if you look at what the governor had proposed at the beginning of this year, it's almost it's about $100 billion more than it was just a decade ago. And yet you look at where that money is going, things like, you know, health and education and social services, you don't see any corresponding improvement in the social conditions that spending is is directed at. And so uh, I think that, you know, that needs to be a big part of this conversation is as we decide where we need to cut and as we, uh, you know, ask the federal government for assistance to avoid some of those cuts, uh, there really needs to be a hard look at how much of the budget that we have now is actually advancing the public interest and doing the sort of things government's supposed to do. Well, I would love to get your take on one of those areas because you've been in the classroom before. That's, of course, education. And we mentioned, you know, that those um, folks are looking at a those folks, the schools were looking at a $19 billion uh, deficit. Newsom seems to have moved money around and is now proposing that closer to nine or 10 billion. What, what, what's your take on that? Like having been in classrooms, given this moment that we're trying to figure out distance learning with COVID-19, the possibility that we can't put the same amount of kids back in classrooms. Um, you know, mm -hmm. many local school districts were already underfunded. How do you think the legislature, I mean, what are you going to be advocating for around that? Well, the, the funding issue is going to be a huge problem. There's, there's no denying that. And, uh, you know, districts already faced uh, enormous cost pressures uh, on a lot of fronts from declining enrollment, uh, from, of course, the, the pension situation, uh, special education. And, uh, you know, that was before COVID. And so a lot of them are really going to be struggling. And, yeah, we do need to find a way uh, to make sure they have the resources they need uh, to keep, you know, uh, and, and to adapt to the change environment and uh, to be able to serve students at the same time, you know, I think it's important to provide, and I've heard this from many, many district leaders, to provide a greater degree of flexibility for local districts in order to run uh, the schools in their area as they see fit, because uh, the state drives up their costs in a lot of ways with, uh, with mandates and compliance burdens. And so if we can uh, provide a little uh, relaxation of that, then that'll actually help in a lot of ways, you know, in a way that, uh, that even more so than funding. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. You're listening to Political Breakdown. We're talking today with Kevin Kiley. He's the Republican assemblyman who represents parts of Sacramento and El Dorado counties in the state legislature. And assemblyman, um, as I mentioned, El Dorado, that's where the governor was yesterday when he announced uh, some uh, funding and preparation for the wildfire season. And El Dorado is one of those counties that was really quick to push for a faster reopening of its economy. Uh, the governor now has given, you know, I guess they've come to an agreement on how that's going to happen. Uh, he said today that 19 counties total, I think, have self-certified that they are prepared to do that and taking the steps to keep workers and customers safe and that sort of thing. 
Are you satisfied? How satisfied are you that uh, you know the state government is working collaboratively with counties like El Dorado? It, it was a step in the right direction when he came up with this regional variance idea. And uh, you know, just by way of background, I was the uh, the first and most vocal supporter of the governor's initial stay-at-home order uh, on the last day before the legislature adjourned. Uh, I spoke in favor of the of the appropriation bill that we had and uh, asked all Californians of regardless of political preference to trust in the governor's leadership. So uh, I've been, you know, uh, someone who has been uh, an advocate for strong action uh, on the in terms of uh, advancing public health and, and combating the pandemic. But uh, as time went by and uh, the um, restrictions remained the exact same throughout an entire diverse state of 40 million people, uh, it became clear that that approach didn't make a whole lot of sense. So I had I was not one of those people, by the way, who was saying, well, every county should just be able to go its own way. Uh, what I proposed is more or less what the governor eventually landed on, which is that the state ought to be uh, coordinating the process rather than dictating it, rather than controlling it. So the state can still set out uh, criteria uh, that individual counties or localities need to satisfy, and then it's up to them uh, to show that they have. So I was really happy that Placer, which I also represent, and El Dorado County uh, were able to, to meet those and have uh, now moved to a somewhat more accelerated timeline. Uh, I also represent the city of Folsom, uh, which is within Sacramento County, uh, which is kind of being hamstrung by the general numbers for a very large county of Sacramento. So what I'd actually like to see is uh, the approach get a little more granular and giving a, give a city like Folsom, or I also present communities of Orangevale and Fair Oaks, the ability to uh, maybe accelerate and move ahead to a different timeline than the rest of the county. That seems like that could be challenging, though, right? Because people don't necessarily stick to work and play in, in their city. I mean, even the county by county thing has its own um, challenges. But I, I want to ask you about, you know, your statement saying, you know, that you were behind the governor. And I think we really did see um, a, an unusual amount of, of coming together, bipartisan togetherness in the early days of this. Um, in a moment, I think we want to talk about the legislature's role. But I'm curious, like, what your take is, because it feels like this entire pandemic has become very politicized. Um, we saw a poll this week um, showing really such a gap in the partisan divide about how worried people are about this, that Republicans were far, far less worried mm -hmm. than Democrats about getting sick or their family members. What do you make of that? And are you worried that it could hamstring our efforts at recovery, both here and nationally? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that, uh, you know, you're right, that it is it has been odd to see the way uh, that kind of polling has has played out um, a little bit. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think that uh, there are uh, in our state uh, a lot of folks who uh, kind of went into this whole thing, not necessarily trusting our government. And frankly, with right. good reason, because I think that uh, for a long time, uh, the, the, the legislation we've gotten out of Sacramento has not been closely aligned uh, with what's in the best interests of a lot of people in our state. And AB5 is, you know, a leading example of that. Uh, so I do think that, um, you know, when you have uh, these very severe restrictions uh, in place and you have these kind of pre-existing issues of trust, then maybe that's where a lot of that plays out, which is, by the way, uh, one of the reasons I felt it important for me uh, as someone who's part of the minority party to be uh, extremely outspoken uh, in on the importance of abiding mm -hmm. by social distancing guidelines and uh, and the uh, you know the necessity of the stay-at-home order because I felt like that was a way that I could try to uh, you know play a leadership role 
in uh, helping uh, folks understand that this is in no way, shape, or form uh, a partisan issue, but is a, a vital issue of public health that affects us all. As you know, at the beginning of this, the legislature, without a single nay vote, uh, granted the governor $1.1 billion and uh, said, you know, spend it the way you think is the best way for PPEs and that sort of thing. And then since then, there have been a lot of questions about the vetting of some of the companies uh, that the state tried to contract with, uh, some N95 masks not being authorized and approved. What are your thoughts about the job the legislature is doing or needs to do in terms of oversight and the fact that they, you know, basically wrote that check and left town? That's, you know, you almost took the words out of my mouth. Uh, I've been quite critical of the way the legislature has uh, has engaged in this process. And there's been a real lack of leadership. And what's resulted is this, uh, you know, regimen of, of one man rule, essentially, or I've compiled all the executive orders the government, the governor has issued, I think it's up to 38, where he's uh, changed unilaterally, uh, something like 180 laws uh, on his own. Uh, and uh, frankly, in several cases, I think vastly overstepping uh, his emergency powers, but the legislature has just let it happen. And uh, there was no effort uh, until the very end of the time we were recessed to even establish any sort of remote forum uh, for legislators to engage. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's been uh, two sides to blame here. On the one hand, there's been uh, some over overreach on the part of the governor. Uh, but then on the other hand, there's been an abdication of responsibility by the legislature. Um, we, uh, often talk a lot about people's, um, biographies on the show. We kind of, we kind of sloughed that off a little assembly member because of the budget news. Um, but you know, we mentioned at the top that you worked, we talked about you, you worked as a teacher. Um, you were also in the state attorney general's office. I'm just curious what it's been like going from, um, you know, being a non-political, uh, you know, you were not a, a political appointee under Kamala Harris, but working, um, under a state government that has been dominated by Democrats, um, and moving over to the legislature. Do you think you bring a different perspective because of that experience? Uh, maybe a little bit, but you know, my my role at the attorney general's office was uh, decidedly non-political. As a matter of fact, uh, it's uh, forbidden by law for them to consider uh, your political affiliation and hiring. You know, I was a civil servant. Mm -hmm. I was part of a vast uh, bureaucracy uh, as a deputy attorney general, and my job was to prosecute criminal cases that came up. Uh, uh, there were felonies that came up on direct appeal. So. Uh, it has actually, you know, given me maybe a little just a general sense of kind of how the go government works at that level. But the, you know, the Kamala Harris thing, uh, this has uh, <laughs> repeatedly uh, come up in my campaigns and I've, you know, uh, <laughs> been uh, superimposed standing next to her on hundreds of thousands of mail pieces, <laughs> and TV commercials yeah. and social media. I've never met her in my life. <laughs> and, you know, you have people who work for the AP's office as prosecutors through six, seven different attorney generals over 30 years. So right, there's um, thousands of them, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's thousands of people. So it's, you know, that's politics. What are you going to do? Um, but um, Can I it, it <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a very different role than being in the role of, as a legislator, which is, of course, a decidedly political job. Yeah, I was just reflecting, though. So were you part, I mean, as a teacher, I don't know if you were part of the teachers union or in a union at the attorney general's office? So when I was a teacher, uh, I would opt out of the uh, portion of the paycheck that goes of your of your dues that go to uh, political activities. Um, but at mm. that point, the US Supreme Court hadn't issued the Janus decision. So there was no ability to uh, opt out 
of, uh, of your more general uh, dues. And uh, that would also be the case for the time I was at the AG's office. Well, we're almost out of time, but before we let you go, uh, you you know you represent a very uh, outdoorsy kind of district. Uh, what are some of your favorite <laughs> things to do out there in the foothills? Oh gosh, there's a lot of great hiking. Uh, you know, um, my Not district now, though, office. You have to socially but... distance, right? <laughs> well, that's right. Well, the, so Folsom Lake, you can still hike to it, but the parking lot's closed. So that's actually one of the issues that we're dealing with because the voters aren't happy about that. Uh, but you know, we've got a lot of beautiful hiking and biking trails. And uh, if you're a golfer, we got great golf courses out here. Uh, if you're a, a top golfer, there's a top golf in Roseville, which uh, sort of became the, the top landmark uh, in a sense uh, in our district when it opened a few years ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, we also just have just uh, some amazing communities. Uh, I rep the two biggest cities I represent, Roseville and Folsom, uh, Rockland, Lincoln, uh, you know, tremendous small businesses and, uh, you know, uh, the communities that really have a lot to offer. So a lot of people stop by on your way to Tahoe or wherever the case may be. But uh, once uh, we move past uh, the, the the time we're in now, I hope you'll you'll come visit sometime. All right. Well, <laughs> Summyman Kevin Kiley, thanks so much for joining us. Please give my uh, apologies to the people of Placer County. I sort of erased them from your district at the top there, but uh, they are <laughs> That's very actually much most part of the district. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank thanks. you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on. You bet. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer today is Jim Bennett. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I am at M. Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time. Stay healthy, everybody. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.